Is it possible to call yourself a Christian, that is to walk in the light, abiding in Jesus, and simultaneously hate your brother or sister? John says in the passage today that this is a contradiction. And yet it amazes me as a counselor, particularly one that deals regularly with conflict resolution, how often people fail to see the incongruence between their attitude toward one another and their professed walk with Jesus. Somehow their hatred for their brother or sister can be compartmentalized and divorced from their faith in Christ. John has been exhorting us to have a consistent faith, one in which the love of God is perfected, and one in which we are walking in the same way in which he walked. He claims that walking in this way leads to true human flourishing, and he's doing that with a series of consistency tests applied repeatedly. Last week, Brett walked us through what that means in terms of obedience. He reminded us that the Bible defines what is truly right and wrong. He exhorted us to know who Jesus is, to do what he commands. In fact, John said in last week's passage that one of the tests of whether we are actually walking in the light, whether we are actually walking in a way that leads to true human flourishing, is to check whether we are actually obeying his commands. Doing what he commands is not merely the absence of sin, but the presence of the transforming love of Christ in us. The premise is this, those who are in Jesus Christ, those who are Christ's followers, who desire to think about reality the way God does, will necessarily, necessarily make progress in being conformed not to the world, but to God. We will want to do what God wants us to do. This week, we'll see how this works itself out in love. If indeed we are his, we will love what he loves and do what he does best, namely love. You will note that this is the first section in 1 John that deals not only in, with our relationship with God, but also our relationship with others. And the practical implications is this. Our abiding in Jesus or lack thereof not only has a direct effect on our own human flourishing, but on the relationship with our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. Another way to say this, if obedience to the Father, something Christ did perfectly, means to carry out his commandments, then the greatest commandment is to love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Walking in the light, abiding in Christ means we are to love one another. It is inconsistent to say otherwise. Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This morning, my challenge to you is this. Keep a consistent faith through loving one another. Here's our outline. First, we'll look at the command to love, verses 7 to 8, the command to love. And then we'll look at 
the test of love, verses 9 through 11, the test of love. And then lastly, we'll look at the power of the gospel and our response. The power of the gospel and our response. So first, the command to love, verses 7 and 8. John begins this section by addressing his readers as beloved. By the way, it's interesting to know that John often wrote of himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And now he uses that with his readers. In urging them to love one another, John assures them of his own love for them. And even in this, there's a lesson to be learned. It wasn't just a formality. It was a term of endearment designed to denote the tone of his message. His choice of words betray his heart. How often in the name of efficiency and, and concision have we typed messages or responded to posts on social media that fail to convey the actual tone of our hearts? Beloved, he writes, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, John says in verse 7. Now, it's important to give a, a bit of context here. One of the reasons that John was writing this letter was to counter the claims of some of the false teachers at the time. Known as the Gnostics, they claimed to have special knowledge or this special revelation from God that distinguished them from the old. To be enlightened or to receive this special insight was to be close to God. And all along, John is saying, no, the message has not changed. To be close in fellowship with God is to walk in the way he walked. And Jesus walked to the cross. He obeyed his Father perfectly. And he demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. And this same love was to be demonstrated by his disciples. In other words, to be close to God involved not just head knowledge, but conduct. This was the very message they heard from the beginning of their conversion. It was not a new teaching. Rather, it was what they had heard all along. In fact, the call to love one another is even older than the beginning of their conversion. It's, it's indeed from the beginning. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so in many different senses, this command was, well, as old as Moses. But it was also new. Verse 8 says this. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, at first glance, it seems that John is just being rather confusing. I mean, which is it, John? Is it old or is it new? Well, the answer is that it's both. And John is emphasizing this old and new tension for a reason. You see, the key to understanding how it is new is in the latter part of verse 8. What does John mean when he says it is true in him? It would seem to me that while the command to love has not changed, the clarity of it, the 
quality of it and the motivation and source for it has changed. So first, the clarity of it. True in him means that it is true in Jesus. You might remember from our Sermon on the Mount series that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Rather, he came to fulfill it, Matthew 5.17. So the law of love is seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, culminating in his death and resurrection. John famously told us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It is not that God did not love his people before. Rather, Jesus provides us with the lens the lens by which we may see this command to love. We are to mirror his love. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The second manner in which it is new is its quality. The command to love is not new, but the way in which Jesus took it to the next level by his obedience is new. In fact, it became the new standard. John 13, 34b, which we looked at earlier, reminds us that just as I have loved you, just as Jesus has loved us, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you are a Christian, you are not just to love others as you loved yourself, but you are to love in the same measure that Christ loved you, that is, with selfless sacrifice, even unto death. Christians are not just to treat their neighbor as one who is of the same race or tribe or political affiliation or socioeconomic status. But as the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us, neighbor means anyone who needs our compassion and help regardless of their race, of their walk of life, of their political views. Christians are to love not just out of sheer duty or doctrinal adherence, but because of their deep fellowship in Christ. The church is more than just about ascribing to doctrinal truths. It is rather a living, breathing organism with Jesus as her head. And that brings us to the newness of its source. God's love for us culminating in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection made possible a new and eternal life in which those who believe in him might be motivated by the grace of God to fulfill the law of self-sacrificing Christ-like love. We no longer love out of our own strength, but our love is possible because eternal life now dwells in us. The eternal life now dwells in us. Love is the evidence of this eternal life. 
It is why Paul can say in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that love never ends. It is why John can say in verse 8 that this new commandment is true in him and in you. Now, John says that it is made possible because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does he mean? Jesus proclaimed in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the light of the world, has come to destroy the, the darkness of sin and death. He has come to inaugurate a new kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God. This new kingdom is characterized by light and by love. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he initiated this kingdom through his submission and his perfect obedience to God's will. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the power of sin and death was broken and this kingdom was inaugurated. And though we have yet to see its perfection, victory, victory has already been won because the power of darkness is broken. Love for others demonstrated in the lives of Jesus' followers provide the evidence of this victory. This perhaps is the most important point about what John is saying and why the newness of it is, is important, even as it is an old commandment. Because unlike the old, which is so easy to turn into legalism, the new is simply an outflow of walking in the light. It goes back to what he's been saying all along. Live out the life of God. Walk in the light. No, you won't do it perfectly, which means walking in the light will involve confession and reliance on Jesus, our advocate. But it does mean, on a very practical level, that he changes our desires. As he draws us to himself, we turn our affections to him. We want what he wants. It is his love that we are reflecting to others. It no longer becomes a, well, how do I love this person so that uh, I can manipulate them to love me back? Or how do I show love to this person in order to win favor with, uh, with them or with God? Rather, it is a pure-hearted love that flows from above through us as we walk and as we abide in him. It is, as Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that we are walking in this light? So we turn to our next point, the test of love in verses 9 through 11. Well, John is not one to leave us in the abstract, so he includes these tests, two tests of congruence. In mathematics, two triangles are, are said to be congruent if they have the same shape or size or the, the, the same shape or size as the mirror image of the other. Now, there are several well-known tests that we can apply to triangles in order to determine if they are, in fact, congruent. For example, we can apply the side-angle-side test. If two pairs of sides of the triangles are equal in length and the included angles are equal in measurement, then the triangles are considered congruent. Similar tests of consistency exist in many other disciplines. Accountants, for example, use a double entry system and a simple equation to test the balance of the books. And errors can be detected 
when the books do not balance. Likewise, John provides a congruence test in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, one thing to notice about congruence tests or consistency tests is that they are binary. Two triangles are either congruent or they're not. The books are either balanced or they are not. As my wife handles the paperwork of her family's business, I can often hear the angst when the books do not balance. There's error somewhere in the books. And likewise, John provides no alternative. There is no middle ground. We are either walking in the light or we are walking in the darkness. To abide in the light is to love your brother. To hate your brother is to walk in darkness. And the starkness of this contrast is to highlight that we cannot have our feet in both places. We either have eternal light, uh, life in us or we don't. And if we don't, though we may be able to fake it for a while, John says that we are actually deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. One commentator put it, put it this way, Hate is the absence of the deeds of love. Love unexpressed is not love at all. Love has no neutral capabilities. When it is absent, hate is present. John's warning to those that hate are threefold. Verse 11 reminds us that such a person is in the darkness that is outside of God's fellowship. When a person is in the dark, he walks in the dark. But walking in the dark is disorienting. It's a bit of an aside, but I once had laser surgery to fix a torn retina in my eye. And it took place in a very dark room in the hospital. And as the surgeon hovered over me with his laser and his face shield, beaming photons into my retina to try to seal it up, he would tell me to look right or to look left, up or down. But frankly, it was so dark and the light so powerful that I had completely lost sense of direction. Walking in the dark leads to stumbling. It leads to aimless activity. This person doesn't know where he's going, resulting in mental confusion, a loss of spiritual direction in life. Which brings me perhaps to the most dangerous thing. You see, the penalty of living in darkness isn't merely that one doesn't see, but that one goes blind. Jealousy, bitterness, and pride set in. They become hard-hearted with a distorted view of reality. Now, I can just hear that you might be objecting quite strongly. Look, Jonathan, just because I don't love doesn't mean I hate them. But John is demonstrating a reality that goes far beyond what you feel. He is describing a reality of the inner man in relation to God's truth. We can only truly love when the presence of God is in us. 
you know, for, for years, I found it very difficult to say, I love you to brothers and sisters, to brothers and sisters in Christ, and likewise found it even more difficult to hear it and to receive it said uh, when it was said to me. It honestly made me quite uncomfortable. And I think the reason it made me uncomfortable is that generally these were people I was really hoping to keep at a healthy distance, set up healthy boundaries, to use the contemporary term. If they truly knew me, would they still say that they loved me? And similarly, how can I say I love someone when I don't necessarily feel that way? And it wasn't until I realized that our love for one another that Jesus is talking about here is not dependent on our feelings, nor is it really dependent on how lovable I am or how lovable they are. It's not dependent on our inherent lovable qualities. Instead, it is dependent on our relationship with Jesus. It's dependent on our relationship with Jesus to love is to reflect the character of God and to abide in the light. To hate is to withhold what Christ has given us. And that's why John says it is a contradiction. This perspective can be so freeing. We are to love others apart from it being a performance or a people-pleasing thing. We love others and say we love others simply because we are his disciples. Commenting on this contrast, John Stott, famous theologian, writes this, If we love people, we see how to avoid sinning against them. I would add, we look out for, the best, for their best interests. Stott continues, Hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. It is love which sees straight, thinks clearly, and makes us balanced in our outlook, judgments, and conduct. Tests are revealing. They help us to discern these errors. They help us discern consistency errors. They reveal our functional faith. But if we merely had tests to reveal what the diagnosis is without a solution, we'd be in a pretty sorry place. That'd be quite miserable, in fact. John here is offering us a series of diagnostic tests in his epistle. Yes, in order that we might discover whether we are indeed walking in the light or not. But more so, he's giving us these tests so as to demonstrate the power of light and the power of of the gospel, which is our third and final point. I was reminded just this week about how powerful the gospel is. Romans 8.11 reminds us, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God is in the business of raising dead people. He is in the business of taking a dead body and raising it to life. God is able to take your hatred, the hatred that is in your heart, and turn it to love. God is able to shine light in the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. 
God is able to bring you out of the darkness and into the light. Now, there are several ways that you could respond to a message like this. You could be like the Gnostics who, in their pride, believed they knew better, though their conduct did not reflect it, and continued walking in the darkness. They ultimately left, as it says in 1 John 2.19. And it was made plain that they never really belonged to Christ. And John's warning about blindness is true. Our, blind, our pride blinds us to the reality that we need Jesus. My word, if that is you this morning, repent. Repent. Surrender. Lay down your fight because you're stumbling around in the dark and you don't even know it. Stop. Come into the light. Turn around. Come into the light before you hit something. Or you could be like the one who dabbles in the darkness, who's in the darkness now perhaps, but wishes to come into the light. My counselees are often in this place. Perhaps you find yourself here this morning. You're stuck. You can see the hatred that's in your heart. You can see the way you react toward your spouse or this brother or sister in Christ, and you wish to be free of it. My word to you this morning is this. Abide. Walk in the light. Cling on to Jesus. 1 John 1.7 says this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus is powerful. Hold fast to him. The third way you could have responded to this message is that you could actually be abiding in the light, but doubting or wondering if you've somehow failed. And my word to you, if that is you this morning, is this. Persevere. Persevere in true love. Remember that Jesus is enough. We are not to produce love on our own strength. Rather, we are to abide in him. And indeed, you will love like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not just theoretical, but practical. And it works itself out, not just in our hearts, but in the way we live and in our relationship with one another. Father, I pray that indeed you would help us to abide in you, that we might reflect your love to one another. Help us to love one another as you have loved us, that others may see us, see the love that we have for one another, and know that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.